0: Welcome back to another episode of Centering the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Lee, the Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Center for Asian American Theology and Ministry. The topic for this season is Race and Grace, Critical Race Theory in Asian American Christianity. This season is made up of a series of conversations with my friend, Dr. Alex Jun, Professor of Higher Education at Azusa Pacific University. Good to have you again, Alex. It is great to be back with you. Thank you very much, Dr. Lee. So this episode, we will be talking about social justice and the gospel. Oh boy. Yeah, there's a lot of controversy about this idea of social justice. So we want to unpack it a little bit. Let's start with a definition. What is social justice?
1: Yeah, there are so many different competing definitions for social justice, and I think a big distinction that some like to make is the distinction between social justice and biblical justice. Um, I don't know if those are necessarily helpful distinctions. Um, I will just say that there are injustices in the world on an individual level, as well as a social level. Um, and part of the challenge, I think, for us to recognize certain social identities that have, for a long time, been denied equitable treatment, uh, fairness, recognition for who they are and what they are, gender, ethnicity, orientation, ability. There are many different social identities. Many of them are socially constructed and that have led to systemic injustices,
0: Well, you're pointing to this idea, right, of uh, thinking about interpersonal justice, righteousness, as well as a societal. And I think this is where people get really lost because they feel like everything in Christianity should be about interpersonal, like how we treat our neighbor. What, why would we think about, I mean, what is this structural or systemic or societal? What is that thing we're talking about? Because that's actually the controversy, I think.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, right? If depending on your own worldview and how you want to and how we've been taught in churches for years, uh, what does it mean to be just and what does it mean to love our neighbors? You think about the parable of the Samaritan. And ironically, many Bibles refer to the Samaritan as the good Samaritan in contradiction to what a Samaritan would normally have been to the listener right? It's negative. What's the modern day equivalent? I'll let the reader's mind wander for a minute to think, then what is a modern day Samaritan? Who do I think of as a Christian naturally and think evil thoughts? Um, And then if I were to add the, uh, the word good in front of it, right? That would be a contradiction in your mind. But I think about the Good Samaritan as an example, and it seems like the right answer is always the individual actions of somebody who was sort of an outcast in Jewish society and culture. Um, it was the individual's decision to do all the things that he did, uh, mount the, the injured traveler onto his own donkey, take him to an inn, pay for everything. Um, and so we hear the story and it's almost this heroic understanding of an individual merciful action. But it's interesting because scripture, the Bible doesn't talk about this only the individual action. There's a broader social context that we need to address as well that I'm happy to get into.
0: Well, I mean, I think thinking about that, I'm thinking about like the nation of Israel, right? God's people. And when God accuses Israel in the Old Testament, like in Amos saying, you as a whole nation have treated certain people poorly, right? I mean, it's not just talking about individuals. We're talking about corporate life, and how that functions. I think that that parable is really interesting in multiple ways because it's, you know, we're talking about critical race theory and I was thinking about does the person who's basically on the-
1: On the road, yeah. Yeah, on the road,
0: do they care? if the healing comes from a godly Jew as opposed to a Samaritan, it's almost like saying, does the people who are hurting care if the justice is biblical justice or just justice? Like, I just want some justice here, you know?
1: Yeah, isn't that interesting? The modern day application of the wounded traveler I think there are some of us might simply say, what were you doing in that neighborhood to begin with? What sort of activities were you engaged in? And we end up blaming the victim.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Um, And then, you know, if we're saying this big distinction that many of uh, Christians are trying to make, is it social justice or biblical justice? And I'll only care. I'll only have empathy if it's biblically appropriate. That's what the priest and the Levite did as they passed on by in many ways, right? I will do my good works within the confines of the sanctuary as opposed to on the way to the sanctuary so we've already segmented and compartmentalized the way we want to do justice in some of my faith tradition right this is the idea of the spirituality of the church that gives good excuse or reason to say we don't engage in things around the world it's only
0: within the church i mean that's brutal when we think about it like the idea of the fact that uh, you know, you're talking about uh, the priests and other spiritual leaders thinking about, you know, Pharisee, thinking about justice in that narrow way, right, in that, in that kind of a spiritualized way. I think about this episode, I thought about Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham Jail, right, uh, 1963. He's talking about this letter is written to white liberals, right, religious leaders, who basically said, wait a minute, look, that's just, you're disruptive. You're disruptive. And that's not biblical justice. I mean, that's, I, I think I think about that, and it's so profound because it doesn't matter what you do. It was nonviolent. It doesn't matter. You are disruptive. You shouldn't do this, right? You should be patient because the virtues we're talking about, biblical virtues, is patience and love and forgiveness. That's been pretty much it. Yeah,
1: that's right. Again, it goes back to inconsistent application for the American Christian, as we think about a variety of issues, which we've been doing on the on the podcast and I'll continue to do, you think about justification for going and invading other countries, right? Where is the biblical justice that drives Christians to say, yes, this is a biblically just move for us to invade other nations and to occupy other countries, right? Um, That's a challenge that we have to think about, but we don't think about it. Maybe our primary response is as American citizens, not as citizens of the world or citizens of heaven. So that's, that's another application that I think it's worth considering. But I wanted to go back to the example of the Samaritan as an application Uh, Part of the problem is, again, the individual actions that we recognize and celebrate and adhere to so easily in Western culture as Christians, but we fail to recognize the antecedents to the event, which may have been structural and social, right? I think churches won't hesitate, I would imagine, for the most part, to feed people who are without homes, um, to provide access to them, and that seems like a good Christian duty and activity in terms of mercy ministry. But then if we wanted to address the social structures that created homelessness, that led to poverty, that led to hunger, we say, no, no, that's social justice and therefore not biblical justice. I don't know where where the line is for some people to make those distinctions to say, I'm not going to get involved in this work because it sounds like a lefty liberal approach to caring for my neighbor.
0: As you were describing that, I thought about critique of capitalism, thinking about the fact that Adam Smith, he saw society as an economic system with different classes working together toward the same goal. And he didn't want to connect economy, economic forces with political forces, with power. Whereas Marx said, wait a minute, are we really all working together? Why do you separate out the economic forces with political forces? Right. And I think about this, the fact that, you know, we talked about this before in a previous episode that we're not, we're, you know, often we compare Christianity with Marxism, when in fact we're we're, we're comparing Marxism with capitalism, both of which have, have their own problems, right? It's not like capitalism is perfect. We have a number of problems with that. So I think that framework is really, really helpful in saying, look, we have biblical critique for both. Why are we giving capitalism a free pass on everything? And demonizing every aspect of Marxism, which just seems bizarre to me intellectually. That's right. And that takes us
1: back to the idea of power and uh, whiteness as property, that we want to hold on to the very things that keep us in positions of power and comfort and wealth. So empire building is very much an infiltrated idea into american evangelicalism and for the american christian we don't think about it and i'm here to confess i'm i'm a good capitalist you know i want to be from a political perspective from a from an economic perspective right i'm not a marxist i'll say it again Mm -hmm. you know i hold to the values that are here and espoused in the united states and i'm also a christian but i'm also You know, someone who understands and embraces aspects of critical race theory. I'm an equity scholar, and I can see the structural inequities that have been in place since the beginning and the founding of land theft in North America.
0: Yeah, Alex. I mean, we talked about this before in a previous episode. The fact that often people think about Marxism versus Christianity, when in fact, we're, we're really thinking about Marxism versus capitalism. Like, for example, Josh Adam Smith thought about economic systems apart from political systems, right? He thought that politics and power and, and economic systems weren't really connected together, whereas Mark said, wait a minute, how can you separate those things together? Because people are in different classes and they're actually and they're treated and they have different experiences, right? That's right. I think one of the things, things that we want to remember is the fact that As Christians, I mean, even though, you know, both of us live in kind of capitalistic systems, like we're not seeing capitalistic systems from God. There actually are serious problems with it. And in that sense, even though Marxism has its own problems, it actually has very insightful critique to make sure that we keep this intention and we are thinking about biblical justice. That's right. I think it's helpful to make distinctions between a political
1: ideology, economic Uh, philosophies and some theological convictions that we have. Oftentimes, uh, folks who engage in social justice work, Christians who engage in social justice work and embrace critical race theory, the criticism is that you have allowed secular ideology to infiltrate and therefore influence Mm. your Christian ideology. And they warn warn me against this um and i say no you're absolutely right um history has proven the dangers of secular ideology Mm. infiltrating theology (laughs) for example (laughs) capitalism infiltrated christianity by by justifying the the ends justify the means to justify chattel slavery the enslavement of africans Uh, to do free labor, Mm. slave labor for generations, because it was somehow justified from a biblical lens. This is a truncated gospel. This would be a fundamental misunderstanding of
0: scripture. Don't you think it's really interesting the fact that when we remember history, We always say, oh, yeah, some weird people thought about those things. But obviously, if you're a real Christian, you would have never thought that way. But in fact, I mean, you see majority of Christians throughout history being absolutely wrong. And we, I think generally we find the minority report, minority witness and say, of course, Christianity is always right. You know, because these people aren't real Christians, even though oftentimes these people are the majority of the people in the churches at the time.
1: That's right. Uh, I think the word that comes to mind is shibboleth, that people love to use shibboleth as, you know, some sort of standard or um, sign that I am a true Christian, right? And then we attach all of these extra biblical notions of what that means. And um, I've said this before in passing, and now I'll just say it. Uh, For the podcast, uh, there's shibboleth and then there's bull shibboleth, right? False understandings (laughs) that are extra biblical, that we've allowed societal norms and values to infiltrate our faith and say, this is what a Christian must do. Must not wear a mask, must wear a mask, must vote for this candidate, must not vote for this candidate, and the list goes on and on and on. And I think it's important for us to hold loosely to both
0: ideas. You know, we talked about this before and a lot of people ask. So we, people say, look, when people, when churches talk about social justice, they're talking about a different gospel or they're being distracted from the gospel work, you know, as a, as a uh, church elder who thinks about these things, you know, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah. It's
1: an ongoing debate, even within my church and certainly in my denomination, different Theological traditions will sort of dictate the level of involvement that any individual church may or may not have with the world, right? It's difficult, but I've only seen bad examples Mm. of churches uh, who will talk about the spirituality of the church, which is doctrinally um, a fine concept, um, but when it's misapplied, it becomes an excuse for inaction for example, civil rights and engagement in the world, that churches to say that we should not be involved in any sort of actions that are going on outside of the church, and it only applies inside the church. That seems like rationale and justification for inaction, but a lot of theological
0: justifications for this behavior. Don't you think it's interesting the fact that when we say inaction, we think we're neutral? When in fact we might just be supporting what's happening with our with our inaction. Like, you know, it's not like as though we're we're totally outside of the politics of what's happening. We're part
1: of it. That's right. There's this idea of complicity. I think psychologists refer to this as the bystander effect. Many examples in social science and psychology of this of thinking that simply by doing nothing, I am neutral. And Paulo Freire talked about that. When we say that we wash our hands from an event between the oppressor and the oppressed, we are not neutral. We are, in fact, siding with the oppressors. Because the very fact that someone is intentionally, maliciously engaged in certain sort of oppressive acts requires everybody else to simply walk on by Or not engage. And that is not neutrality.
0: That's a great point. As I've been thinking about this, is the gospel only otherworldly? Jesus Jesus died on the cross just so that all of us, after we die, can go to heaven. What about the idea of the kingdom of God? What about the idea of loving our neighbor? I I think about, as a reformed theologian, I think about Martin Luther and his his famous track, uh, Freedom of a Christian. He talks about a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. But a Christian is perfectly dutiful, servant of all, subject to all. And, he, and he's thinking about spirituality because he was living at a time when people are really into mystical experiences, their own spiritual kind of a, uh, kind of over spiritualized way of thinking about their Christianity. And he was like, "Wait a minute! What about the neighbor? What about the neighbor? You know, you're, you you don't have to try to make God happy because we don't. God doesn't accept us by our spiritual works." Why don't you serve our neighbor, right? Why don't you think, look That's at right. the people around you? So there's this direct connection. We talk about the vertical and the horizontal, but in fact, we just, we, we fail to see the fact that this is a, you know, I mean, I, I think it's not so much the fact that we don't deny the eternal aspect of it, but the fact that Jesus came to give us life uh, you know, full life, not only in the past, but but right now as well, right? This idea of a holistic, right. full, uh, multifaceted gospel. That's right. Is, I think what we should to cover.
1: And you think about, is it in the book of James, it talks about true Christians should care for widows and orphans. And if our individualistic understanding of that is one widow, one orphan, as opposed to recognizing systems. I mean, again, depending on how, what our interpretation is, Of scripture, we either are able to see how scripture is replete with examples of systemic injustices, Mm. right? Or we only see the one story. I mean, there is a major story, the redemptive historical story of a redeemer. Yes, that is the main story, but it's set in the backdrop of a lot of social injustice and unrest. And that's the buildup to understand what is happening in almost every scriptural passage. Right. Again, a good example, going back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? We recognize the injustices that go on. Jesus points out to the reader and to the listener, the inconsistency, to use a kind word, of the religious, religiously faithful, mm. right? He's talking to us. Yeah. And for the religiously faithful to then identify the Samaritan as somebody other than, so I don't know what world are we for Presbyterians? Are we talking about Episcopalians? <laughs> you know, I mean, who are we talking about? LGBTQ, Muslims? Who is it? Who is that other, mm. uh, the theological other that we completely disagree with with lifestyle, um, theology, orientation, and they're the ones who are doing work. It should convict us. I think about Black Lives Matter. Uh, the organization, not the sentiment. Uh, Black Lives Matter is engaging in work. Now, they're not coming from a perspective of Imago Dei, seeing uh, human beings made in the image of God, but the work that they're doing as a Christian, I can see very much addressing the importance of Imago Dei, of image bearers, who are dying in the streets every day, those that are recorded and those are not. Cannot Christians get alongside them and recognize the important work that they're doing, even if our fundamental motivations might be different?
0: I mean, last summer, you uh, and I and other leaders in the Southern California area organized this uh, API Christians for Black Lives event, and you know I know that we had very various people. I mean, we probably one of the biggest, I think, most diverse because a lot of times different kind of churches, different religious uh, or spiritual or theological background people, don't, we don't always work together, but this is one of the events where we had some people who are mainline who are evangelical, and, you know, you spoke to different people within more of the conservative areas. I mean, so what did you tell them? What did you tell them? Because even in terms of, I mean, you know, doctrinal kind of understandings, there is a wide range, but we said, this is important. This is something that we can kind of unite together. Because it's a broader problem that we want to witness too. I mean, what did you, how did you explain this to your friends?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, This is true for Azusa Pacific University, which is a Christian university where I'm a faculty member that not everyone necessarily agrees, understands um, the movement for Black Lives Matter. And I also have colleagues who are very involved in Black Lives Matter Los Angeles uh, at my church. Um, Presbyterian Church in America, um, my denomination may not align with some of these actions, both personally, individually, or as a church. Hmm. So I went on behalf of uh, myself, right? I represented myself and who I am. Um, I have that academic freedom, I'd like to think. I have that volition as a member in good standing at my church and as a ruling elder in the Presbyterian church in America. But I also bring with me all of these other communities into this space. So, you know, I, it may start there. If someone said, Oh, if you're trying to bring your whole church to this, isn't that a violation of, you know, spirituality of the church and all that. And it, it, my first question to this individual was, do you want to come with me? Before I make an announcement to the church, will you as an individual come with
0: me? Yeah, no, I mean, you know what? This idea of uh, church's corporate response to social issues, as I've been reading through some of these uh, theologians uh, in the Confessing Church under Nazi Germany, some of them said, wait a minute, like we don't have a theology to figure out how to take a stance politically. And thinking back to our churches today, you know, our churches are, because we want to keep the, the tax exemption, We can't be political. And I was like, wait a minute, is that biblical? I mean, tax exemption is one thing, but what if we want to say, wait a minute, we think at certain times what's happening in the state is wrong, is against scripture. Can we do that? Or will we lose tax exemption? And is that something we should worry about as churches? That's such a bizarre idea theologically, don't you think so?
1: Yes. um, I have lots of friends who are missionaries in various countries around the world. And as they're sharing with Christian brothers and sisters in the faith who are suffering for their faith, it's really hard to bring up this conversation about tax exempt status oh for pastors and churches yeah, yeah. uh you know i when i bring it up they they pause for a minute and then it's just sort of well I, we'll pray for you we don't know what to oh pray goodness. for the church in america oh if this is your biggest problem yeah right um because i think we've lost a sense of what true suffering is and i'm not saying that christianity needs to become some ascetic religion where we are looking for suffering. That's certainly not the case. And as much as we appreciate Constantine, uh, we don't need Constantine, Mm. right? Mm. Uh, This is what Michael Horton had once said, uh, that we benefit from it, but the, the church does not need Christianity to become mainstream in culture. And those are the distinctions I think that we need to be battling. But I have another thought. The association with any given organization or movement that people are triggered by. Today, it's CRT, right? Or Black Lives Matter or whatever. Some some conservative Christians uh, have a hard time with these concepts and say, I just can't have these conversations because I associate it with something so anti-Christian. And then I say, how about the military? Now, how is it that you see the militarization of the United States, which is not a Christian nation, um, and you don't see the inconsistencies with a Christian faith. Mm. I don't identify necessarily as a pacifist, but this is something that I wanna raise as just a thought experiment. Right. Uh, in my denomination, we have a regular uh, communion with the entire gathering for General Assembly, and we ask the military chaplains mm. to help distribute the elements. Yeah. And people love it. They celebrate it. And, you know, I appreciate it as well. But again, I want to hold a critical lens to this. And I want to make the distinction between a critical lens and a critical spirit. I want to hold a critical lens to this and say, what would other Christians outside of the United States say when they see flags and uh, battle fatigues and then they see the Eucharist, they see the body and blood of Jesus being the elements being distributed. How does that hit for people who have a challenge, a difficulty looking at US military and their presence around the world?
0: Right. I mean, we've mentioned Constantine before. So Christianity persecuted under the Roman empire before Constantine. I mean, at the time, Christians thought it was unfaithful to be part of the military. But after Constantine, now we have this weird dynamic where you can be a soldier and be, be a Christian. And when you think about it, I mean, how does that work? Right? I, I I think it's, it's complicated, but when we look at it, we're like, how does that work? Because obviously the first century Christians took seriously uh, Christ's commands and said, look, how do you basically love your neighbor? How do you, how do you turn out the cheek? How do you do that? And this, I think what's weird is the fact that we don't realize the amount of kind of undercurrents of of culture that normalize certain things. So we can't, see what scripture says like we just say well that doesn't apply because that, that's contextual it doesn't apply to me because right. obviously you know we're christian nations so we can have a, and as long as you're individually christian of course we want chaplains in, in our army i mean i'm not once again i think that's a complicated matter but i think we how do we think about those things critically is basically what you're bringing up right alex
1: right i mean if if you're a skeptic uh listening to this and you're still listening and i haven't lost you <laughs> uh these are the moments where people say well this this person is just anti-American, anti-military, pacifist, lefty liberal. No, none of those are true. Um, I want to hold on to uh, multiple realities and ask the question. In in my own exploration, talking with several friends who are um, military chaplains and involved in the chaplaincy, and I'm trying to understand, is it similar to what corpsmen or medics do, Mm. right? That that their oath is to treat everyone, anyone, even the quote-unquote enemy, Mm. right? If it calls for it, 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 uh, maybe they take a Hippocratic oath as well, I'm not sure. But do chaplains do the same thing? Do they pray for, first of all, in the U.S. military, do they only pray for the Christians? uh, Or do they pray for everyone with, you know, uh, multiple faiths or no faiths? And do you pray for the quote-unquote enemy, And are you able to minister to them as well? I just don't know enough about it. What I do know, for some people, uh, the uniform and military presence and the movement of defense, very triggering, almost as triggering, perhaps, as people who hear words like CRT, BLM, you you fill in the blank. And we say, well, any association with this, for me, means it's unchristian. Again, it goes back to the shibboleth, bull shibboleth that we get caught up into.
0: Yeah, I had a professor, uh, Dara Guter of of Princeton, who would remind me the fact that Nazi Germany was considered a Christian nation. And of course, Nazi army had chaplains. And I think about it a little bit. What? What do you mean? Oh, yeah, because they were a Christian nation. They had Christian chaplains, right? And of course, I mean, you know, Nazi Germany was trying to force people to be chaplains and things like that as well. But we think about that. uh, And I find it interesting the fact that when I see German Christians, I mean, people, Christians from Germany come over and they see a U.S. flag in our congregation, they flip out. They're like, why is a flag in your church? That does not belong there. We've lived through that history. You don't have, you know, a dueling, a conflicting interest right? Or allegiances. We are our allegiance to Christ and Christ alone. That's, that means that we basically set aside. You don't have Christian flag and the Christian, you know, the U.S. flag side by side. It's just very confusing and it, it's, it's conflicting in terms of what does it mean to submit to Christ as Lord?
1: And again, as a thought experiment and for us to be able to, to think differently, I remind the listeners who Christians to say, well, we pray for our missionaries who are living in other countries, especially countries that are hostile to the gospel. They may also be hostile to the United States and some of our foreign policy. But are you comfortable with the flag of the People's Republic of China inside the Church of Jesus Christ in China? Mm. Are you comfortable with the flag of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, mm. North Korean flags, yeah. in the Church of Jesus Christ? And you hear the criticism. You hear, oh, that's awful. That's oh, how can you know that's so oppressive? And then I say, now flip that flag, flip the script, and replace the North Korean flag with the United States flag. You should be just as appalled. Yeah, yeah. But if you're not, then it may reveal something that is really a conflation of our own patriotic understanding of the country along with our faith in Jesus.
0: Yeah, I mean, so thinking about all that and coming back to it, I, I think about the, the connection between. The God who justifies us, right? Romans 4, 5 talks about uh, it's the one who does not work, but trust in God who, who God justifies, right? God justifies the ungodly and their faith right. is credited as righteousness. But the same God is the one who works righteousness. Psalm 103, 6 talks about God works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. And I mean, once again, we're talking about the fact that we talk about our individual personal salvation, our spiritual lives, but we have to think about what what does it mean from from a global perspective, from a national perspective, from a societal perspective, historical perspective, where is the injustice, where is the oppressed that God the Lord, Lord of Hosts, want to work righteousness and justice. It's interesting the fact that if you really are are, are keeping the Testaments, Old Testament, New Testament together, the whole witness of Christ of God, then we think about that kind of justice as well, right? We're not over spiritualizing in a sense that we see so often, right?
1: That's right. That's right. And I think the other challenge, if I could pause for a moment, and think about. All of the brouhaha over critical race theory over, you know, and recently, you know, some of us may know the statement that came out, uh, Josh McDowell, uh, a very faithful evangelist and has done lots of good work for the Lord recently came out and apologized for something he said about one of the greatest dangers, uh, threats to American Christianity or Christianity in general is critical race theory. Mm. So let's think about that. To say that the greatest threat to Christianity in America is critical race theory. Not racism, Mm. but critical race theory. I think that reveals a lot about where we stand on certain issues. I know more people who will talk about the dangers of critical race theory, but have never talked about the dangers of systemic racism or individual racism. So I just want to pause and and reflect on sort of where we are in this discussion among Christians in America. That is a problem.
0: That's a powerful word when you think about that. I think people who are talking about critical race theory, they're not interested in critical race theory. They're interested in racism. They're saying this is a tool to show us something. We talked about that, you know, critical race theory can be a way in which we understand more sharply doctrine of sin, right? The fact that, you know, in terms of idolatry of nationalism, of whiteness, we, we're talking about that the powers and principalities of, of, of uh, racism and, and classism that's there in our society. I mean, these people are not trying to make idols of critical race theory. They say there is a problem, and these tools Help us. If, if it's not these tools, maybe some other tools, but there is a problem here.
1: That's right. And I will say that critical race theory tenants are helpful in understanding uh, a Christian's understanding of the world and uh, identifying some of the challenges that have been, to be kind, blind spots for many Christians in America. But the solutions ultimately may not reside in critical race theory. Mm there i said it it doesn't reside in critical race theory for me as a christ follower the answers absolutely reside in a christian understanding a biblical understanding at the end of the day it's christ's return for his people uh taking us up to our heavenly eternal rest that is the ultimate i understand that but you know daniel it's akin to the argument that i don't know why more people don't make, I don't want them to, but the idea of a physical illness, um, this is a sensitive subject, but if we were to talk about cancer, for example, or any other sort of terminal diseases, I don't hear Christians arguing the dangers of science, of secular science and ideology that's crept into the church. How could you get radiation and cancer treatment? You should just pray. Just preach the gospel, you're going to heaven anyway. I suppose there are some smaller segments of uh, American Christianity that reject all medicine. Right, right. That's something for us, again, a thought experiment for the Christian listener to say, why is it that we're so inconsistent in the way that we might even approach caring for somebody who's got some sort of terminal illness? Of course, we pray, of course, we intercede on their behalf, and we pray. That the physicians and nurses and technicians and the medicines that we use that were created by non believing people but were made in God's image, we can use ordinary means to accomplish extraordinary things.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's this point. It really is so important, right? We sometimes feel like we are defending Christianity as though we can't learn from all things. And we've talked about this before, right? The fact that all truth is God's truth because God really is a source of all truth. And uh, God is the one that judges all falsehood. I think in so many ways, we have conceptions about what Christianity is. And we try to defend those things and say, well, look, this is being contaminated. Or we might say, well, this is actually, this is what's happening to the church. And I'm reminded the fact that our salvation comes from God, not perceptions about Christianity. Or, you know, we're not talking about a perfect church. We're talking about a God who saves a church that's actually broken, right? We're wounded healers in that sense, wounded healers that we know our brokenness. But I think that's the idea of kind of witnesses, right? As Christians, we are witnessing to the one that saves us, right? We're not pointing to ourselves. I really like this whole point that you're talking about in terms of medicine because, I mean, just like that, you know, just because uh, fundamentally we talk, we witness to a spiritual reality, it doesn't mean the fact that we do nothing, right? I mean, we don't, it's not, it's not one or the other. We can say, look, maybe God can use these things and sometimes, I mean, sometimes you can have a terrible pagan doctor, a non-Christian doctor, but you say, well, I don't want this doctor. I mean, this Luther asked this question because is one of my favorite theologians. He's like, what kind of cobbler do you want? Like, I want a cobbler, right? You know, you don't want a Christian cobbler who makes terrible shoes,
1: right? Yeah, the best shoemaker. Yeah. Yes, and this idea, right.
0: once again, of the fact that, you know, there, they're, these realities, their injustices. And, and I think we can kind of obsess about these things and say, well, is it biblical justice or not? But you know what? Some people talk about biblical justice, they don't do anything. And we've been so complicit. So in a sense, maybe yeah. we're prodded on but other people and other kinds of justice to rethink and rediscover the deeper justice that resides in the gospel.
1: That's good. Uh, Daniel, it's a good reminder to myself. Criticism is not a spiritual gift, right? That is not a contribution to the conversation. Uh, I was thinking about, um, Oh, the, the analogy that comes to mind is, you know, you're 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 digging a hole that really needs to be dug uh, in order to protect for the oncoming storm and you're working your way through and people at the top are not helping you, but they think their contribution is, you know what, that's not really how you're supposed to use the shovel. Mm. You know, you should have started with a, a deeper angle or you should have thought this out a different way, just straight up Monday morning quarterbacking <laughs> yeah. uh, of work. And it's hard. It's hard to listen to people who are not engaging or feel like their contribution is mainly to
0: offer criticism. And it's usually
1: just not helpful.
0: Yeah, once again, biblical justice, I absolutely believe in biblical justice. Yeah, get to work, right, you know, and get, get, get dirty uh, in where, where the people are. You can't talk about biblical justice and basically write papers or, or post blog posts. Right. It just it just doesn't work for people who are literally experiencing these things, experiencing just terrible events in their lives. Right. And I think this is where we have failed to really listen to and to see and to love our neighbors. We have ideas about what neighbors are. I think it was talking about the fact that the idea of loving other people is so pleasant, but other people are not very lovable. Right. That's I right. Mean, it's hard. Right. And I think this is, yeah. you know, I, I was th- talking to somebody else because, you know, you've been a missionary and talking about missionaries affect a lot of missionaries. I think this is one of my missiology professors talking about this thing that a lot of missionaries and if you look at mission history, a lot of missionaries, uh, contrary to popular belief, were very sensitive to the political uh, oppression of the people they serve. They were politically savvy. They said, "Wait a minute, this something's happening structurally, right?" They knew that people who who, who they were, they were mis- ministering to were experiencing oppression. So they knew that to sit there and help, mobilize it, to think about other structural issues. It wasn't like they were saying, "You know what? You need Jesus. So if the, if uh, the systems around you kill you." It doesn't mainly really matter. I think missions history kind of shows all these people, even missionary to Korea, as you know, supported the liberation movement against Japanese occupation, right? Like, No, this is actually a bad thing. It's part of the reasons why Korean uh, you know, uh, resistance movement had all these Christians in it. That's right. Again,
1: it, it, if nothing else, the inconsistency that we see um, in terms of engagement the individualistic nature of how we want to approach it and the horrible gaslighting that occurs. Uh, the final example I want to give here is when someone breaks their arm, right? They break their left arm and and they they start sharing how much they're in pain. It's toxic positivity and gaslighting for us to turn around and say you should be grateful that your other arm isn't broken. Mm. Right? Why do you make it sound like there are bigger problems in the world? Why would you ask for prayer for this? Right, I mean, it, and is this really biblical justice that you're asking for? You broke your arm; it's probably your own fault. What were you doing on that skateboard at 40 years old? Sorry, that was for my pastor. Um, anyway, you think about right the way that we respond in a very unloving, uncharitable way when people are in pain. How do we get back to the roots of a loving community that are our first response? is the hands and feet of Christ mm. to one another. And that's what I hope we can focus on as we think about all the other issues that surround justice.
0: And that's a great word. And Psalm eleven seven says, For the Lord is righteous, he loves justice, and the upright will see his face. Uh, thank you so much, listeners, for joining us for this episode. We hope to continue on this conversation. Thank you.